So I think it goes back to the Christmas story in 2017 in December when we started. We are in Luke chapter 24 today. We're going to land the plane next week, all right? So uh, turn with me to Luke 24 if you have a Bible or a smartphone or something smart enough to carry the Bible. Uh, let's look at Luke 24. We're going to look at verses 13 through 35 today. The renowned British uh, author and theologian John R.W. Stout once wrote, now listen to this carefully, he said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hand and feet, lacerated limbs, wrenched, uh, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God's forsaken darkness. And then he says, that is the God for me. He set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. The Gospel of Luke tells the whole story, how the Son of God entered into our world through the virgin birth, how Jesus, the Son of God, came to do his Father's will and to announce the good news of the kingdom of God, how he loved people, how he healed people, how he delivered people from their darkness and pointed them to life. He discipled and mentored 12 men one of them dropped out. And he planned to turn the whole thing over to these men. Last week in Luke 23, Jesus' primary work in bringing redemption was finished with his death on the cross. There he paid for your sins and mine. And today we turn to uh, the page of the resurrection the death of Jesus was devastating to all. None of them were expecting a resurrection. They had lost hope. And then came the resurrection. Back on April 21st, Easter Sunday, we taught this passage, Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. And I want to read just uh, 1 through 8 to set the context for our passage this morning, Luke 24, and here's what Luke writes. He says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning that Luke reports later were angels, stood beside them in their fright. The women bowed down to their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. Then they remembered his words. And now, the news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ spreads. And that brings us 
uh, to verses 13 through 24, we have a divine counter encounter, and we see the situation in verse 13. Now that same day, Sunday, the first day of the week, the same day that the women went to the tomb and found it empty, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So two people, maybe two men. Some have wondered if it's a husband and wife. Could be. Likely they too had been in Jerusalem at the Passover where thousands upon thousands had gone. And um, now they're returning home to Emmaus. And of course, there is one map today, and it is here. And so just uh, we look at the land of Israel. Uh, this is the place we find the life of Jesus. Remember, uh, he was born way down at Bethlehem near Jerusalem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And so Jerusalem is where the temple was, and that's where the Passover was held. That's where Jesus was crucified. And um, we don't know exactly where Emmaus is. We have this seven-mile uh, destination, and we don't, the scholars don't know absolutely for sure today where that location is, but that's an idea. So, um, so they're, going to, they're going home to Emmaus. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. They're talking about what had happened in Jerusalem. Maybe they were there on Palm Sunday. Uh, one week, it's just one week ago, one week earlier on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and thousands lined the streets and gave him praise. They gave him a, one of the greatest welcomes anybody has ever had in Jerusalem. Maybe they were in the crowd on that Friday and they heard people yell, crucify, crucify, and they remained silent. Maybe they saw Jesus nailed to the cross on Friday. Maybe they saw his body taken down from the cross. What a tragedy. Verse 15, and they talked and discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up. What a surprise. Jesus himself came up and he walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. This is an unusual situation. What, you know, can you imagine just walking along and all of a sudden Jesus slips up beside you, starts talking to you? They were kept from recognizing him. I don't know why. But God kept them from recognizing him. And I don't know a whole lot about a resurrected body. I know a few things. I know a few things about Jesus' body. It was his body. It was a real body but it was a changed body, and it also taken on a spiritual dimension somehow. And, and we will see, and we, it's reported in the Gospels, how he's able to appear or disappear if he chooses. He is no longer under the limitations of the physical world as we know it. God kept them from recognizing him. Verse 17 through 24, we see the discussion, and Jesus engages them. Verse 17, he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Uh, it's not like Jesus doesn't already know the answer to that question, but he's engaging them. He wants to draw them out. 
Uh, we know from many passages, Jesus knew what was in man. He knew what they were talking about. And they stood still, their faces downcast. They just stopped when Jesus asked this question. Um, they're, they're, they're saddened. They're downcast. It's like, I thought about this. My mother died when I was 16. And I was the person who had to report her death to the first people. I had to call my dad on the phone. I had to call the doctor and call them to my house. I had to start telling people. People started coming to our house. I didn't have the words to say, my mother is dead. I just didn't know what to do with that. And I think just for an instant, when they've been recalling this situation where their hero has been murdered, and he's gone, and their hopes are dashed, they don't know what to say. They don't have words to answer. Jesus, what are you discussing? However, in verses 18 through 24, one of them snaps out of it. One of them, verse 18, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in those days? Wow, you are really out of touch if you don't know. How is it possible that you have come from Jerusalem and you don't know what happened? That's got to be impossible. He breaks in. What things? And so now they're going to recount. Well, it's about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. We sometimes forget that Jesus was a common name in the first century. There were many people named Jesus. No surprise there. Jesus is identified as Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one from Nazareth. And that's how he is described by people in the first... Oh, it's Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, I know who he is. I've, I've heard about him. I've seen him. Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, they said. But he was way more than a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed. Yes, a prophet. He was a spokesman for God. And yes, he did reveal prophecy. And he even interpreted prophecy. He was a prophet, but he was way more than that. He was powerful in word. Confounding religious leaders, teaching about love and forgiveness, speaking truth and bringing healing to many. He was powerful in word and in deed. Verse 20, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. They're, rec they're recounting the story, what had happened. Yes, the Romans pulled off the execution. They have responsibility. But you know what? It was instigated. And it was uh, carried, it, uh, carried through by the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin of Israel. And uh, verse 21 says, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They speak of their former hope. We had hoped this. Uh, we no longer have this hope. It's gone. They had hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel, but he didn't. Or did he? 
And this is an interesting thing that Jesus is going to uh, point out to them here as we, as we follow this. What were they expecting? What did Jesus teach? See, there's this common view in the first century. Um, there, there was this view that God was going to raise up this great leader, someone like Moses. Moses delivered Israel out of Egypt into the promise. He brought them right to the promised land, and then God took them in with Joshua. And they're looking for some kind of great leader that's going to just throw off their enemies. And Jesus didn't do it that way. And they're highly disappointed, they're hurt, they're saddened. It wasn't what they thought. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And for us, you know, third day, like, oh, yeah, he was raised on the third day. We know that. They didn't. It's the third day. In the first day, they weren't even sure it was true. How could it be true? On the first day, can he overcome this? Second day, is there a way that God can do a miracle? Third day, we're out of here. No hope. Verse 22, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So the women came up with this amazing story. They don't know what to think of it. You know, kind of like the first response was, probably not true. They're women, you know. It is Jesus who really raised the value because women were really put down in the first century. Sadly, they still are in many areas. Um, some of the women amazed us. They have an amazing story. The tomb was empty. Angels told them that Jesus was alive. And we don't know what to believe. It doesn't make sense to us. Verse 24, then some of our companies went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. And they were referring to Peter and John. Remember, it was John who ran faster to the tomb. But Peter, the old guy, shows up. John stops, out, probably out of reverence, respect. He doesn't go in. And Peter just barges right in, and the tomb is empty. So let's just take a step back for a minute. What would it be like if Jesus came up and started walking with you? What would you say to him? A question for us. Do you walk with Jesus? Are you walking with Jesus today? Uh, do you talk with him? Do you share your life with him? Do you engage your life? Have you today? Uh, do you listen to his words? Do you follow his instructions? Uh, do you see Jesus as your leader in life? You know, the name of our series, Follow the Leader. Do you see Jesus as your Lord? It's about learning who he is, embracing him, and becoming a follower. And it's not about, do I, am I going to follow Jesus today? I just need to know what I need to do today. That's a difference. Uh, here are some reminders. Galatians 5.16. Here's a reminder about walking with Jesus. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Apostle Paul in the first century. 
And he just says, walk by the Spirit. He means walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. If you walk with the power of the Holy Spirit, you're walking with Jesus, okay? So walk by the Spirit. There, we have resources. We've been given the Holy Spirit to live in us. And if we walk in his strength, relying on him, he helps us overcome a lot of stupid things. He helps, he helps us overcome selfishness and sin. And that's just a reminder. And then there's John 8, 31 and 32. And Jesus speaks here and he says, if you hold to my teaching, New American Standard says, if you continue in my word, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And, and Jesus uh, gives an opportunity to follow him, to walk, to continue, to obey his instructions. He's leading, we're behind. And we're following in his footsteps, we're following his path. Um, and one of the great questions is, is, can you walk with Jesus when it's not popular and when it's not politically correct? Are you okay just to do what Jesus wants? And then he offers the power, the strength to set you free. Free from yourself, selfishness. Free from, to overcome sin maybe to overcome an, uh, an addiction, maybe to overcome fear or anxiety. And then let's look at John 15, 7 and 8. Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Oh, that's so simple. Jesus, just give me what I want and I'll ask. Give it to me, give it to me. And know he said, if you remain in me and my word remains in you, that means if you're following really closely. That means you're walking with Jesus in an intimate relationship and your heart is enmeshed with his heart and your heart is beating with his heart and you start to want to do the things that please him. I remember how, uh, as a brand new follower of Christ, how I experienced this probably for the first time was so, you know, I came to faith at age 25. It's a very selfish individual. You can ask my wife for the whole story. And my life got radically changed. And I had embraced the good news, and it was so good, I wanted to share it with other people. And I started praying for my father. I started praying for my sister. I started praying for my coworkers. I started uh, praying for former college students that I was good friends with. And sort of one by one, God gave me opportunities to share the good news. And I had people from all those groups come to faith in Christ. And that just was overjoying. And there was no money involved. There was no material benefit involved. It was just pure joy to see people come to faith in Christ. And uh, verse 8 said, this is to my Father's glory. This isn't about me. This isn't about you. It's to the Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. It's about walking with Jesus. 
Okay, back to our story. We've had a divine encounter with Jesus now, a divine discovery, Luke 24, verses 25 to 35. First, the reproof. He said to them, how foolish you are. Wow, did you see that coming? How would you like Jesus to come to you and say, how foolish you are, people, and how slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken? You know, maybe you and I are foolish sometimes because we don't believe all that God said. Or maybe we're foolish because we don't take it seriously. Or we only embrace the parts we like. Um, Jesus is going to offer correction for those disciples. And I'm sympathetic with them. I'm not any smarter than they are. I wouldn't have known any different. I wouldn't have known as much as they did. But he says in verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? They were not looking for that. This was not the anticipation of the first century. This is not what people read in the scriptures. They had all of the Old Testament. They had access to all of it. They, somebody read all of it. But they just glossed over those passages that were hard or that didn't fit with their own theology. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And the big deal is, yes, Jesus is going to be a great deliverer. Yes, he's going to redeem Israel. Yes, he's going to... He's going to bring the whole world together. There are passages that talk about how the Gentiles will bring honor to God one day and how Israel is to be a light to the Gentiles. But there was a huge group of people who just had one view in mind and they wanted escape from their problems. This sounds a whole lot like the 21st century. Because sometimes we Christians just want God to solve our problems so we can get on to a happy life. And that's not what the scriptures tell us. The scriptures say we're going to suffer sometimes. Sometimes life is going to be really hard. And we're to view trials as an opportunity for joy as an end result. We don't want that. We don't like that. Let's just look at scripture that gives us hope so we can feel better about ourselves and about today. And this is a danger sometimes of devotional reading when you're just looking for a verse to get you through the day. And that's okay to find a verse that gets you through the day. But Scripture is way more than that. And we learn all about God. We learn all about His plan and all about creation and what His original purposes were. And we learn all about the future as well. And we learn things like, yes, life sometimes in the Old Testament, sometimes in the New Testament, life is really hard for somebody who follows God. And we just need to make sure we're embracing all of Scripture and not just the parts we like. So, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, meaning the law and the prophets, meaning for Jesus, all of the Old Testament how they pointed to his coming. And that would include especially things about the Messiah would suffer. 
God's special servant, anointed one, would suffer. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 16 are just some. And that, that was a description of Messiah. But they, they just avoided that part because they probably didn't understand it. Verses 28 through 32, we come to the discovery. And they approached the village where they were going. Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. Jesus didn't want to be impolite. He didn't want to impose on his friends. And he just sort of waited. But they urged him, verse 29, they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's getting dark, Jesus, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So first day, resurrection day, Jesus goes in their house in Emmaus. We assume it's probably one of the people lives there, one of the guys, or if it's a couple, and Jesus goes in. He accepted their invitation. Verse 30, when he was at the table, dinner time, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Now this is kind of a change because Jesus is the guest, but now he's the host. Did, did they invite him to be the host? Maybe they, they thought he was an honored guest as he spoke of the scripture, as he taught them. And so they invite him to be their host, and so he's going to serve them, and he's going to pray for the meal. Or maybe Jesus just decided to do it. But this is not a communion service. It's just supper, breaking of the bread, Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then the amazing thing happened and he disappeared from their sight. Whatever happened, I don't know. Whatever happened, their eyes were opened. Whatever happened, they were able to perceive that this was Jesus. This is the resurrected Jesus Christ. Was it the way he broke bread? They'd seen this before. Was there something unique about that? Was it his prayer? Did they recognize his voice? Did they recognize the way he prayed? Did they see his nail-pierced hands for the first time? You know, I wonder, you know, you try to imagine, how did they not recognize him in the first place? Did he come up? Was it a cool day? Did he come up with a big hood over his head? And they just aren't even paying attention? Who knows? I don't. Maybe someday. And so Jesus disappears. This is the nature of the resurrected body. I don't understand it. It no longer has the same limitations as Jesus' physical body before his death and his resurrection. Verse 32, they ask each other, the two, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They're just overwhelmed with the impact of his words and his presence. This was so amazing. The scriptures were made so much more sense after Jesus explained them. And so, it's nighttime. They're seven miles from Jerusalem, and they've got to report back to the other disciples. Verse 33 and 35, the report. They got up, and they returned at once to Jerusalem. It's dark. It's a seven-mile trek, and they just go. They are so compelled to share this with somebody else. They are eyewitnesses. 
to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they can't contain it. It is worthy news. It must be told. And they went to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven. Eleven, eleven is a technical word for the eleven disciples who are left. Sometimes in the Gospels, they are called the twelve. That included Judas. After Judas drops out, sometimes you see them called the, the eleven. When the technical word is used, like the eleven, it doesn't mean there were eleven disciples present, but it's the original group of followers of Jesus that he uh, instructed. And uh, it's probably that Thomas isn't here on this occasion, so maybe there's ten. And so um, they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together, so There's this group after the resurrection, and they've gone probably maybe out of fear for safety to be with each other. You know, there's been a death. And sometimes just being with people who love somebody is is a great comfort. And so there they are. And saying, it is true. So they walk in on this discussion. It is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. It's starting, this thing that happened in the morning is starting to make sense to the disciples, and now the other two show up, verse 35, then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So they they tell their story. Uh, And they are eyewitnesses of what they have seen and heard. And the news spreads Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed. And it makes all the difference. And see, they're just witnesses. And, you know, we are called to be witnesses. We are called to tell our story. We don't have to tell everybody else's story. We don't have to tell everything there is to know in the Bible. We don't have to know all the hard things in the Bible. But If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have a story, and it is worth telling, no matter what. It's worth telling to other people. It's worth telling to your friends. It's worth telling to your family. It's worth telling to your coworkers as God empowers you, as God directs you. Question for us. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean to you, mean to us? What does it mean to me? Uh, What impact has the resurrection of Jesus Christ had on you? Do you take time to reflect on it, the meaning of it, the implications of it? Do you recognize that it's the foundation to the new life that's pictured in baptism? Last Sunday uh, evening, we had a baptism at Fairfax Pool. And when somebody's baptized, they go into the water identifying with the death and burial of Jesus, and they come out of the water identifying being raised to a new life which is a picture of being born again. It's a new spiritual birth, a new track. And it's because of the resurrection. Ray Stedman uh, once wrote this. Uh, Ray was a well-known pastor in California um, in the 1970s, 1980s. The resurrection, probably in the 1960s. The resurrection is not only the good news, it is the best news imaginable. Could you agree with that? 
So uh, let me remind you, let, let me remind you of some passages. First, let's consider uh, what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This is a prayer for, that Paul has for the church. He says, I pray to the, he's telling the Ephesian church, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I think he knows your, your heart doesn't have eyes. But he's praying for spiritual perception, that they would see with their heart in order that you may know the hope which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Do you know about God's incomparably great power for you who believe? Next, next passage. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The same power that raised Jesus is available for us. Now, I'm not saying he's going to raise you from the dead, or I'm not saying he's going to raise whoever you want from the dead. It's the same power we have access to. And it's for God's mission. It's for making disciples. It's for following Christ. It's for living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Paul continues. But because of this great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And we love that. And it, this is the context of uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. We love that. Now, next slide. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God, if you placed your faith in Christ, Jesus was raised and sits at the right hand of God by God's power. If you are a follower of Christ, you have a new position. You have been raised with Christ. That's your identity now. This is your future you're here in this room, but you have a position waiting for you. You are seated at the right hand of Christ. That's your future. And that's true now. That's your identity. You are not the same. And God wants you to be a trophy of His grace. It is by grace you are saved. And He intends that you be a trophy in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. He wants to use you to expose the entire world to his grace. Now look at Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who will bring charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is praying for us right now. 
at the right hand of God. And what if I align my life with his and I pray for what he's praying for? What if I remain in him and he remains in me? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, last passage. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Next slide. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation is ready to be revealed in its last time. It's because of the resurrection we have a new birth. It's eternal salvation. It's because of the resurrection we now have a living hope. Jesus is not dead. The hope is real. It's not just an imaginary idea in my head. It's whether I live or die, whether I believe it or not, it's true. Jesus is alive right now. He's seated at the right hand of God. If you and I could go there, wherever that is, we would see him and we could touch him now. Our salvation is procured by Jesus' resurrection. It is shielded by God's power, and it does not depend on you. It does not depend on me. It's about what Jesus already did. It is the work of the cross and the proof of the resurrection. So for us, let's just walk forward. Let's walk with Jesus one day at a time. That's a great thing. I love the picture of walking because sometimes I fall down. Sometimes I fail God. Sometimes I sin, and I need to get back up. I need to confess my sin and get back up, and I can just keep walking. I don't have to be sidelined. I don't have to go to the bench. I can get back up. I can stay in the game, and I can keep walking. I believe Ray Steadman was right. The resurrection is not... uh, the, just the good news, it is the best news imaginable. Let's stand and pray. Father, we uh, have good news. It's good news indeed that Jesus was resurrected, that on the third day the tomb was empty. And there, Jesus brought victory over sin and death and over Satan. And God, we have that power available as a resource from you if we rely on you to live our lives one day at a time. It's not necessarily for our pleasure or our wants but that power is available to live for you, to represent you well, to be an example of Jesus Christ, to have strength to be faithful, to have strength to overcome. Father, enable us to humbly walk with Jesus one day at a time. In his name and for his sake, amen.